tell us how do you do it? I'll do it. Be quite honest, we cheat. I'm Gordon Caddick. This is Cited. And I'm Sam Fenn. And uh, we're here with uh, our producer, Alex. Hey, I'm Alexander Kim. A lot of what we're doing this season on Cited is looking at the question of trust and whether or not we should trust scientists and trust experts of all sorts. The first episode, if you haven't heard it, that was a kind of crisis in trust, a crisis sparked by postmodern scholars questioning the authority of science. And this episode is similar, except the skepticism isn't really coming from postmodern scholars. It's coming from science itself. It's coming from defects in the very methodologies that scientists use. So on the subject of, of trust and experts and trust in science, um, I know a guy who is fairly distrustful of, um, of scientists, and that's my friend Alexander Kim here. <laughs> um, and I, but I also know another guy who was very trustful and sort of uh, Pollyannish about scientists. Oh, who was that? That's my friend Alexander Kim when I first met him. <laughs> yeah, well, it's true. Um, when I was a younger man, I <laughs> I was, uh, you know, an avowed um, empiricist, an avowed, like, quantitative guy. I believed in data. Like, I, I was studying science in my undergrad. I thought I was going to be a scientist. And, like, I believed in the goodness, the inherent goodness of science, that like there was this thing that humans had figured out to come together and like dispassionately ask questions about the world and like the only thing that matters is truth and like the whole enterprise is just about producing truth, like figuring out what is what is real, what is true and what, what we can learn about it. Um, and yeah, like so I thought that was, I wanted to be part of that essentially. So Sam and I, we can bloviate all we want about the nature of truth or what scientists do, but in terms of, you know, actual scientific methodologies, we don't really know that much, but you're, you're like the real deal, right, um, Alex? Like, like, give us your scientific credentials. <laughs> BSC. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not really a scientist, but I, um, I, I do have some research experience in my, in my undergrad. Like, I studied uh, neuroscience, and I spent most of my summers in labs um, learning different techniques, and I did, like, this thesis project in my last year. I've, I've done some science, you could say. So you came to us, you wanted to be at that time, a science journalist, right? Yeah, I figured, like, I found out that it, that science wasn't exactly for me. Maybe I didn't have the, the personality type for it. And I started asking myself, what the hell am I going to do? Maybe I'll tell stories about science. And so on today's show, we're going to hear the story of your, uh, of, of your fall from grace <laughs> and losing your religion, right, Alex? Yeah. But you want to start us in sort of a weird place to do that? Yeah, so this story is a bit about me, but it's also about science, the methods of science, and whether we can trust them. Um, it's a story about idealistic empiricism versus pragmatic economics, and it's a story about this long-running feud between magicians and psychics. And that story begins with Dr. Daryl Bem. 
So first thing, can I get you to introduce yourself, so your name and, and what you do? Okay. Uh, my name is uh, Daryl Bem, B-E-M, and I'm retired from Cornell University, where I was professor of psychology uh, since 1978. Um, but now I'm retired. Professor Bem lectured at Carnegie Mellon University, Stanford, Harvard, and Cornell. As a researcher, he studied public opinion and personality. Bem's work was influential, making him a prominent and respected authority in his field, not associated with anything, you know, weird. One day in 1985, Bem receives an invitation to a convention with a strange request. It's from a group called the Parapsychological Association. They are, and I'm quoting from their website now, the international professional organization of scientists and scholars engaged in the study of psi, or psychic experiences. What is psi? Okay, psi is the ability to acquire information in what we call non-local ways, that is, uh, to be able to pick up information that's just not available to our senses in any other way. And there are sort of three major, uh, major phenomena that fall under that. The first is telepathy. The second one is clairvoyance. And then the third one is precognition, which is the ability to anticipate the future in ways that could not be done by just inference or other, other means of knowing what's going to happen in the future. Bem's work doesn't have anything to do with this stuff, but he does have a special skill that fascinated the parapsychologists, magic. When I was 10, 11, 12, and 13, I would give magic shows at birthday parties where I would earn $5 if I helped clean up. And so um, by the time I was in high school, I got interested in an area of magic known as mentalism, which is essentially fake, psi, fake ESP. It's magic tricks designed to look like you can read minds, for example. And so I actually developed a routine, and I was a stage magician doing that kind of thing from high school on through college and beyond. And um, even did my performances at the end of a semester as a treat to my students in the psychology courses I was teaching. The parapsychologists ask them, would you come to our convention and give us a presentation? Not about your influential self-perception theory or your research on template matching. We want you to put on a magic show. They tell him that they want to protect themselves from fakers showing up at their labs claiming psychic abilities. In fact, psi researchers had already been fooled in a very embarrassing, very public ordeal just a couple years earlier. James Randi Conjurer is a scourge of the psychics. He travels the world debunking claims of PK. James Randi, known on stage as The Amazing Randi, orchestrated a years-long hoax on a parapsychology research group in St. Louis, Missouri. Two young magicians working with Randi approached the lab and claimed that they could do all sorts of paranormal feats. Randi called the operation Project Alpha. We have been working, first of all, to establish the range of abilities that Mike and Steve have, because 
These have apparently included being able to move small solid objects across a tabletop, influencing a variety of metal objects such as keys and silverware and metal bars and metal rods. I don't believe they're tricking us. But in 1983, after Edwards had amazed the audience at a New York press conference, Randy dropped his Project Alpha bombshell. I'm going to ask these two gentlemen a very simple, direct question. Can you tell us how do you do it? I'll do it. Be quite honest, we cheat. So I'm uh, happy to announce that... So they wanted to know from me how I did some of the things or at least show them what to watch out for. So wait, so um, I just want to I just want to pause the story a little bit and I want to ask you mm -hmm. at this time do you believe in ESP as well? No, I I pretty much held the view of most psychologists and of all academics the psychologists are the most skeptical. So, Bem travels to Medford, Massachusetts, a little city 3 miles north of Boston home to Tufts University. That's where the parapsychologists gathered. Um, are you looking around this room of people and thinking, what a bunch of fools? Or what are you thinking about oh, these people? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. They, too, have usually come to their views by looking at la rigorous laboratory experiments that are well controlled. So, no, I don't believe that at all. So Bem takes the stage and introduces his act. And then, from the audience, a man brings forth a locked box. Someone would come prepared with a set of eight items in a box that was sealed up, and they swore that they hadn't told anyone what was in the box and that they had filled it at their home, and that even their wife or husband did not know what was in the box. And I would then ask them to concentrate on the items one at a time. And I would describe what those items were. That was one of my favorites. So if you don't mind um, revealing the, the nature of the trick, uh, how, how are you able to do it? Uh, that, that I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. Uh. Um, <laughs> no, we do not... As a, as a magician, we do not reveal the secrets. And in fact, it annoys some mental magic magicians just to tell you that it's faked. After the show is over, a man approaches Bem and introduces himself. Charles Onerton, director of a parapsychological research group based in New Jersey. And because I had also had experience setting up and performing social psychology experiments, uh, invited me to his laboratory to look it over to see if, if it was possible to cheat in his experiment. And so I went there, and in preparation for that, I started reading the literature quite, quite a bit. And that persuaded me that, gee, it really looks like something is here. And so I went to his laboratory, looked it over, and decided it looked airtight to me. And so I said to him, you know, the other talent I have is getting published in mainstream psychological journals. And I said, if you get positive results, with these, with these experiments, I'd be willing to try to get us published. Why did you make that offer? Because I was imp very impressed by the experimental methodology and thought if he got positive results, then that was enough to persuade me. So as a, as a scientist, as a researcher, do you believe in Psy? 
Yes. And I believe it because of the laboratory evidence for it. Uh, psychologists tend to be very skeptical of anything other than laboratory evidence. And so Bem starts believing in the absurd. But ironically, this belief comes from a commitment to empiricism, not a rejection of it. Bem starts to think Psy is real because he believes in the standards, procedures, and values of science. Recruiting Bem was a major coup for the parapsychologists. They hoped that Bem would bring with him an air of legitimacy and the respect of mainstream science. Soon, Bem begins to design his own psi experiments. And the more he does them, the more he becomes convinced in the evidence for psi. Bem wants other scientists to see it too. And so he makes these experiments watertight, ironclad, undeniable. His findings would not be easily dismissed by skeptics. Nonetheless, these experiments are really weird. In one experiment, the participant sits down at a computer. On the screen, there are two curtains, left and right. This is meant to be a test of precognition, predicting the future. The participant is told that behind one of the curtains is a, is a picture, and behind the other one is just a blank wall, and, the ch and that some of the pictures are erotic. And the, the challenge to the participant is to select the curtain that has the picture behind it. Let me see if I understand this, Alex. So they're supposed to predict um, where the picture, where this erotic picture is, is going to be. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. There's two sides. They have to pick left or right. Um, and you say ero erotic picture? That's right. <laughs> okay, what? Like what? Yeah, well, there's different photo sets depending on your orientation. Um, so you tell them when you go in, like, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a straight guy. You select uh, your preference, okay. yeah, okay. You like, um, what would be arousing to you, I suppose. And then some of these images, these uh, the images that you're supposed to be guessing are, you know, basically really old-looking weird porn. <laughs> you want to you see it? Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've got some of these on my work computer. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so Bem has, Bem sent you some of the nudes that he. Um... Yeah, I've got his program. Hmm. That's kind of just like a guy's ass in, in bed. Yeah, um. you sort of see a guy's naked butt. Um. um all right. Right. What's that? Okay, Ooh. that's a. <laughs> that's pretty. That one was just porn. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So why was he doing this? Like, why did he get all these nude photographs? Um. Basically, the theory is evolution. Well, uh, you have to ask yourself, why, if Psy exists, do, do we have that ability? So you look to evolution. Why would evolution have favored such an ability? For two reasons, Bem says. The first is avoiding danger. Call it your spidey sense. The second is your reproductive urge, your sexy sense, I suppose. Because you have to mate. And, and so that means that sexual scenes, sexual opportunities, should be something that it would be valuable to be able to anticipate. Okay, so if you were going to do this experiment, mm -hmm. and 
What would your hypothesis be? What would you expect to happen? Okay, well, just to just to clear up, I can't see behind the curtain at all. No, right? So I've, you know, not until you make your choice, left or right. Right. Okay. So, you know, um, I don't think that I'm. I have any kind of sense ability yeah. to intuit where the nude pictures are. Mm-hmm. So it'd be a coin flip, right? Yeah, just totally random. Yeah, and 50, if you 50. if you did the experiment enough times it would get to 50%. Yeah, and you'd expect that there'd be no difference between when there's, like, porn hiding behind the curtain and some other image, like a tree or whatever. Absolutely not, yeah. Yeah. It would make no no difference whatsoever. But what if you had psychic, time-traveling, mind-reading powers that could sense sexual uh, materials for evolutionary reasons? Okay, I'm going to try to just even understand the mechanics of it, okay? Is it they, they travel in time, forward in time so, and read their own minds? That's what he's saying? Yes. And if that were to be possible, then yeah. you'd see that the success rate for those sexual photos right. would be higher than 50%. Right. And it was. In our experiment, we saw 53%. In this experiment, Bem found that his participants were able to correctly predict where these sexy photos were going to be in the future 53% of the time, which sounds like half to me. Doesn't sound like it's different than 50-50, right? Right. But according to Bem, it actually is. It's a big deal. This means, this 3% means that somehow information is traveling backwards in time. Bem takes the findings from nine of his precognition experiments and writes it up into a manuscript. And then he submits it to the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. This is considered a top-tier journal in the field. Bem's paper finishes peer review in 2011 and gets published in the journal's 100th volume. The title of the paper is Feeling the Future, Experimental Evidence for Anomalous Retroactive Influences on Cognition and Affect. By all standards of modern psychological science, Daryl Bem had proven that precognition is real. You know, like 53% of the time. And that's a uh, statistically significant uh, difference that beats the null yes. hypothesis there? Y- yes, we can't claim... We can't claim it until we've actually done that. There are two there are two numbers that are required in reporting an experiment. You mentioned one statistically significant, and we probably probably should tell the listeners what that is. So when Bem says statistically significant, he's talking about a number, and that number is usually called P or the P value. Okay. And the p-value is a number that comes out of these statistical tests that scientists will use to analyze their data. And these tests tell them whether uh, two things are statistically the same or statistically different. Okay. Um, Hmm. Having made cited, obviously I hear the term p-value a lot. Mm -hmm. At a really basic level, I don't even know if I totally understand it. Right. 
Um, yeah, basically, this is like um, this is a probability uh, calculation, and that's what p stands for. P stands for probability. And if you have a p value that's lower than a certain amount, it represents a very small probability that whatever that this result you're looking at is just due to random chance. It's just due to a, a it's a false positive. So once you get a p value that crosses that threshold, and in and in science. More often than not, that threshold is 0.05. And so basically, if you run an experiment enough times and you get a, you get a certain kind of result, you know, enough times, then you can start to say, this doesn't seem to be random. Mm -hmm. This seems to be telling us something. Yeah. There's something here. Yeah. Bem has mathematically shown that his participants are able to guess where those sexy pictures end up better than chance. Right. This is like, let's just put our cards on the table. This is outrageous, right? Like the, the, mm. the experiment he's doing, like it just doesn't pass like a bullshit test, I think. No. For most people. No. But scientists have this kind of commitment mm -hmm. to objectivity, to um, uh, having this kind of quantitative view of the world. Yeah. And so I would imagine at this point, there'd be this real pressure from two different sides if you were, say, a publisher mm -hmm. um, to kind of respect BEM's findings because they satisfy mm -hmm. your requirements of these sort of scientific requirements. Mm -hmm. But also there would be this cultural pressure to um, reject the findings because they seem crazy. And did you have did you have trouble getting this paper published? No, it was accepted. The editors did feel it necessary to publish a a note along with it saying justifying their accepting of the paper. What did that say? It said that this these are intriguing results, but of course we hope that other people will try to replicate them. And that's that's the absolute standard in science. You have to be able to replicate them by other people. The more extraordinary the result, the more controversial the result, the more important it is to have other people try it out. I'm Gordon Kaddick, and you're listening to Cited. We'll be right back after this break. This is the part of the program where I sell you meal delivery kits. But like I said last week, we're going to spare you. I just didn't want to subject you to ads. Instead, I asked you to share our episode with a friend and then to send me a photo of your text or email to that friend. This was the deal. The first three people who did that would get swag. Well, you held up your end of the bargain. You shared it. Anya is a computer science major, and she sent it to a few of her friends. She told them, Cited made her think a lot about the role of science. Patricia is in a philosophy reading group. They're reading Deleuze. And she shared the episode with the group. She told them, My brain is exploding. Leora shared the episode with her colleagues at McGill University's Expanding Economics group. By the way, they also have a podcast. As promised, Anya, Patricia, and Leora will all be getting swag. I'm making some mugs. As soon as I get the designs right, I'll send them your way. This week, no swag this time. Sorry, can't afford mugs every week, but stay tuned. There'll be more stuff. 
I'm still going to ask you another favor this week. I just want you to email me. I just want to know more about who you are, what you do, and why you listen to Cited. Maybe tell me a little bit about what you think about this episode. You don't have to give me an essay, just a short note. I really just want to know who you are. You can send that to info at citedmedia.ca. Again, that's info at citedmedia.ca. Okay, back to our regular scheduled programming. Welcome back to Cited. I'm Gordon Caddick. Before the break, we met the infamous Professor Daryl Bem. This magician psychologist was just about to throw the entire field of psychology into chaos. Producer Alex Kim will take it from here. Uh, so I want you to tell me a little bit about, uh, about Daryl Bem. Can you give me a sense of, of how respected he was, how important he was to the field, how prominent? This person is, is influential. I mean, he set the tone for how psychology was practiced. What do you mean he set the tone for how psychology is practiced? Um, he was one of the folks who people look to to decide what the right research methodology is. This is Jeff Gallick, professor of marketing at Carnegie Mellon University. He studies consumer psychology and behavior. Not him alone. I mean, he and the cohort of other successful psychologists and researchers. But he was there doing it, and everybody agreed that the methodology that he and everybody else, myself included, follows um, is is what's appropriate. And I think his paper on Psy absolutely mirrored the norms that were were around and still are around to a large part in uh, research methodology and psychology. Gallic runs what's called a journal club at Carnegie Mellon. Each week, researchers will pick a peer-reviewed journal article and then meet up to discuss. They talk about the paper's strengths, weaknesses, and implications. After Daryl Bem's Feeling the Future came out, everyone wanted to talk about it. So this was, you know, on our list really quickly to read. And we had a discussion and the discussion was mostly positive. I mean, we mostly came out of this saying, you know, we're skeptical. We can't believe that this is true. But look, like, here's the evidence. It's in a good journal. It's been refereed. Uh, and we should believe it. So there was like 20 people in a room discussing this paper. It's hard to remember, maybe around 20. And, you and you know, I, I've sat in a journal club before. So you kind of hurl everything you have at the paper and find the the any crack that is there, mm-hmm. and and you mostly came away. The paper mostly came away unscathed. The paper came away with we still don't believe it because it was just so incredible, and yet we couldn't find any uh, critical flaw at the time. Yeah, hmm. which was unusual for our journal clubs. Usually, our journal clubs, as you point out, end with us thinking that papers are terrible. Bem's experiments were standing up to very close scrutiny. The paper had all the appearance of good science. It was so convincing that Gallic felt that as a scientist, he had to take this seriously. My understanding of all the work that had been done up to this point was that it was sloppy, it was not um, done in any kind of, with any kind of scientific rigor, and here comes one of the most prominent psychologists in our field with what looks to be a rigorous, tightly controlled set of experiments that demonstrate uh, the presence of some version of psi. Uh, that's that's impressive. Gallic thinks, could this be real? I think this might be real. And he calls up a fellow researcher at UC Berkeley, Leif Nelson. Nelson has his own journal club at his university, and they talked about feeling the future too. But Nelson came out of the discussion on the exact opposite side. 
there's no way that this finding is reliable. Uh, and so he and I were chatting, and he and I bet this twenty dollars that I said it would replicate, and he said there's no freaking way that that's going to happen. <laughs> the two scientists decide to repeat Bem's experiments themselves and see what happens. If we can replicate Bem's findings, then psi exists, and this changes everything, right? But if we can't replicate, then maybe there's something even weirder going on here. Something we don't understand yet. So we had this huge sample of people across a variety of, of experiments, experimental conditions, so laboratory, different universities, online, and so on. And across all of those, there was absolutely no evidence for psi. I really wanted this paper to be true. <laughs> um, I thought the world would be just such a more interesting place if there was such a thing as Psy or ESP. Um, and I was, you know, I, I bought it. I really did. I made a $20 bet and then I lost it. So Gallic and his collaborator, they did everything as closely as they could to match BEM's study. They just, just, just do, do the exact same thing yeah, that he did, right? Yeah, replicate. That's the idea. Right. But... In the end, doing everything the same, these two groups came to completely different results. Right. Okay. Well, so if Bem's if Bem's experiment um, actually what you know didn't produce real results, how do you explain that? Like, what what was actually happening with Bem's study? Well, I think the first thing that we can say is that we can probably eliminate the possibility that time traveling mind reading is real. Okay. So here's here's my question, right? The p-value thing we were talking about earlier. Is the theory that it's like 100% accurate, that like there will never be um, an experiment that reaches that p-value of 0 0.05 mm -hmm. and, um, and that isn't just sort of like a like random noise? Basically, it's like um, it's a marker of good enough to certain okay um 0 0.05 but there's an understanding that that even even past that threshold there's going to be some there's going to be some stuff that just is is random or whatever yeah right yeah you can't control for all randomness or whatever okay so maybe the bem study is just one of the ones that just one of the outliers yeah and you do expect like a certain um rate of false positives just to happen right right if you if everybody's using 0 0.05 like what, what that number represents is that there is a less than 5% chance, according to the statistical model, that this result is a false positive, right? Oh, okay. That, that it's random, right? Right. So, okay. So the bad We're 95% certain. Yeah. Okay. So, the, so then the, there, there you go, right? Like case closed and the episode, uh, <laughs> the BEM, the BEM study is just, just, you know, um, just happened to be one of the 5% that kind of sneaks through. Yeah. And I think a lot of people may have been thinking that, but others... We're looking for sort of deeper explanations. Okay. They started looking under the hood of the scientific practices themselves and how they how they uh, work across psychology. Like how they collect their data. Yeah. How we yeah. determine what gets published. Exactly. Right. And a huge impetus for this was this paper that was published the same year in 2011 called False Positive Psychology. And basically what this paper showed was that it's possible for a psychologist using totally normal research practices to prove pretty much anything. Researchers, and this includes me and everybody else, have the ability to decide on a number of factors that seemingly are inconsequential 
for finding things like statistical significance. And yet, when you look at them in aggregate, they have tremendous impact for false positive results. Uh, in other words, I, as a researcher, have the luxury to, say, choose between multiple dependent variables. And if I fail to report the fact that I'm doing so, I'm inflating the likelihood that what I'm going to report is a false positive. Throughout the scientific process, scientists make choices. What to manipulate in an experiment, what to measure, how to analyze the data, and crucially, how much of this process to report when it's time to write the paper. All of these choices affect p-values. And if your p-value isn't smaller than 0.05, your results are not going to be publishable. As a researcher, you have a couple of options. You can simply abandon the study here, or you can keep working the data. This is called p-hacking. Yeah, right. So p-hacking is basically a form of, of cheating. Chris Chambers is a professor of cognitive neuroscience at Cardiff University in Wales. He's the author of the book, The Seven Deadly Sins of Psychology. P-hacking is where you selectively report an analysis out of many analyses that you ran. And when it comes to writing up the paper, you selectively report the analysis that quote-unquote worked. So, okay. Hypothetical experiment. Okay. Right? Let's imagine you want to find out... Um, how much like a discount will affect people's behavior at uh, like an all-you-can-eat buffet? Okay, right? so five bucks off today. Yeah, like uh, either you pay ten bucks or you pay five bucks or whatever. And does that you know? So in an experiment like this, like you can measure whatever you want. You can measure all kinds of things, right? Right. You can, um, how much people eat, obviously, right? Yeah. But like what they eat, how many like trips do they take to the table, the buffet table? Do they do they drink? Alcohol? Do they drink water? How right. much do they drink? You know, you can. Right. Do they tip better? You know. Do they, yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, all kinds of things you can look at, um, and then what you can do, just look for differences among all of it, right? Okay. So if you actually, you actually ask all those questions. You don't just ask one or one or two of those questions. You ask all of them. That's right. You record all the answers. Yeah. You're just gonna have this spreadsheet or something. You know, test this and this. Yeah. This and this. This and this. Then we oh, find something. Finally, a hit. That's yeah. interesting. What does that mean? And then we 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 didn't have a hypothesis about that. No. Maybe we kind of cook one up now that yeah. we got the yeah. And then that's a paper. Okay. So some of them work and some of them don't work. Yeah. Okay. So what's wrong with this? I mean, well, basically, the only thing you're looking for is significance, and if that's all you're looking for, you will find it eventually. Like you can just keep testing, 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 and then you can find something. Now, it could be true, it could not be true, but um, the chances that that's a, a false positive are not 5%. They're much higher. And that's because we just observed this kind of out of like a sea of random numbers. We weren't drawn to this result because we had a theory about how the world worked and we tested that theory. We were drawn to it just because we looked and said, ah, that, that, that's publishable right there. If you selectively report and you cherry pick only the significant result, um, then it artificially inflates the certainty in, in your finding and, and makes it seem a lot more convincing than it really is. And this helps psychologists publish in journals because journals want convincing results. And so the whole crappy cycle just kind of goes round and round and round. That all-you-can-eat buffet experiment is a real one. It came out of the Food and Brand Lab at Cornell University, run by psychologist Brian Wansink. And it produced four papers published in peer-reviewed journals. Those journals later issued corrections 
and one paper was fully retracted. It's not easy to know the prevalence of this, but evidence suggests it is common. In 2012, a survey of more than 2,000 American psychologists found that every single one of them had selectively excluded data at least once. And so, psychologists started to think a little differently about Daryl Bem's feeling the future. And this is really interesting, because if a paper like this that's doing everything normally and properly can end up producing a ridiculous conclusion, then how many other papers that use those exact same methods that didn't reach ridiculous conclusions are similarly flawed? This was the beginning of what became known as the replication crisis. Replication. It's the cornerstone of science. Is there actually a reproducibility crisis? Experiments are supposed to show the same results every time. We're, we're now in a very fascinating place where BEM seemed to have proved something that was, that was unbelievable. Yeah, impossible. Raising the very good question, how much of what we thought was solid was true is in fact just wisps of dust. Does this mean that most published research is wrong? Free, no tech life hack. All it requires of you is this, that you change your posture for two minutes. Two big, itty myths. Two minutes, two minutes, two minutes. Some really cool research really we've cool. just been doing recently that you can take home tonight. After 10 years of experiments, I found it. A moral molecule. And so, to address this question, a bunch of scientists come together from all over the world to form a group called the Open Science Collaboration. And they do this massive replication study. They pick 100 different studies, all published in the year 2008. And they say, okay, let's organize all these labs across the world in 17 different countries. Let's repeat these 100 studies as closely as we can. What'd they find? Well, it wasn't good. In 2015, the results of this replication experiment came out, mm-hmm. and the only 36% of the replications were successful. So that's a little bit better than one in three. Wow. So 50% would have been really bad. This wasn't just one little um, outlier, mm-hmm. perhaps, with mm-hmm. BAM, but maybe this was like the germ of something like of a kind of rot yeah. like right at the heart of psychology. Yeah, and this is not just like Daryl Bem. Tons of psychologists had their whole worlds turned upside down. Uh, Let's just take one example, the people who worked on this big idea called ego depletion. And the idea behind it is that self-control is thought to rely on a limited resource um, that runs out after use. Michael Inslicht is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. And when you use that resource, the self-control resource, to control your impulses or thoughts or behaviors at one time of the day, you will have less of that resource to control yourself later on. Maybe you diligently eat healthy foods all day, but at night you just can't help yourself from binging on chips. Resisting temptations or making tough decisions uses up brain power. The idea became pretty popular. Barack Obama once said that he always wore the same suits to avoid wasting his decision-making power on trivial stuff. Inslicht built his career on ego depletion. He worked on this theory doing his own experiments for almost a decade. But now, doubt and uncertainty were growing in the research community. 
A big meta-analysis, which is a study of many studies, came out. It said that there was no good statistical evidence for ego depletion. At first, Inslicht wasn't convinced. To him, it seemed like funny math. Ego depletion had been empirically observed hundreds of times. You can't just make that all disappear. But what will really solve this issue is if we have a bunch of people around the world trying to replicate um, a, 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 a paradigm, an ego depletion paradigm that, that the proponents of the theory agree about, um, and then you know, a bunch of people go off and, and test it with thousands of people, and then we can ascertain to what extent this is a valid idea or not. And that's in fact what happened in 2016. And the results were shocking. Um, the overall meta-analytic effect from these 23 labs was zero. In other words, a, a, a finding that had been replicated now, people say, about 600 times, um, when there was a rigorous, um, pre-registered, principled attempt to replicate it, we could not. And that was, um, I mean, disquieting. And it wasn't only ego depletion. All kinds of effects across psychology would not reliably replicate. Unconscious priming, stereotype threat, the facial feedback hypothesis, power posing, if you remember that. I had trouble, you know, differentiating like what was real, what was not real. I, I'd grown up uh, a scientist, you know, believing in the scientific method and the tools that we used. And all of a sudden, this one replication made me just question everything. What was real? What could I trust? Were the things I was studying, were they real? It was as if the ground had shifted. Maybe it was never there in the first place. Watching this happen changed Inslicht. He would never be the same again. But to his shock, others in his field didn't seem nearly as troubled. The senior people of our field, um, the gatekeepers, the caretakers of our field, the people who were in charge, um, they were acting as if nothing was amiss. They're acting as if this is business as usual. Um, nothing wrong here, folks. Keep on moving, keep on working. And I'm like, what? Up until that point, you know, being a scientist, you know, working at the University of Toronto was a joy. It was a pleasure. I derived so much meaning from it. Um, I was one of those weird guys where I told myself, yeah, when I'm 65, 70, I'm not going to retire. Why would I want to retire? This is, this is fun. After this, um, maybe walking away from this isn't such a bad idea. You know, I'm not just doing this for, for, for myself. I'm not just doing this because I think it's fun. I'm doing this because I think it's important. Um, I'm doing this because I think science, you know, advances knowledge and knowledge um, is important. So the fact that, you know, it's being revealed that all this could have been for naught is distressing. If you're not bothered by it, then I'm not sure what's wrong with you. The American astronomer and author Carl Sagan wrote that science is like a candle in the dark in a demon-haunted world. Science is supposed to be the light that leads humanity out of the darkness of ignorance, an engine of ceaseless progress towards enlightenment. But is that really how science works? Or have we all just been fooling ourselves this whole time? Gordon Caddick, and you're listening to Cited. We'll be right back. 
Here's another ad break. This time, no favor, I just want to do some housekeeping. I wanted to announce a new thing we're doing. It's called Secondary Symptoms. Secondary Symptoms is our new COVID-19 mini-series. We decided we need to give you some COVID content, so we're starting a quick and dirty interview program. We're calling it Secondary Symptoms because it's not really about the disease itself. It's not about what COVID does to your respiratory tract. No, it's about what COVID-19 is doing to all of us, what it's doing to our politics, our science, and our social fabric. If you're subscribed to our podcast, you'll already see secondary symptoms in your feed. You don't need to do anything. I'm going to try and post secondary symptoms once a week, usually Monday or Friday, and you'll get cited documentaries on most Wednesdays, so you'll hear from me twice a week. If you're listening to Cited at citedpodcast.com, well, you're going to have to subscribe to our podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever people find podcasts. Secondary Symptoms is an experiment, so as always, tell me what you think. You can tweet me at Gordon Kadic, that's G-O-R-D-O-N-K-A-T-I-C, or at Cited Podcast. Okay, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Sam and Alex will take it from here. Welcome back to Cited. I'm Sam Fan. I'm here with Alexander Kim. Hey. And in this story so far, um, we've been talking mostly about psychology, right? Mm-hmm. And just and we and we're just starting to ask the question of is this really contained to this thing called psychology, or is the 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 replication crisis does it maybe go further than that? As far as I can tell from my research and my reporting, I don't think there is a good reason why there couldn't be a replication crisis in the hard sciences. Mm-hmm. And there's actually some evidence that there's there's a big problem here. Like um, there was uh, Bayer and Amgen, the, the pharmaceutical companies, they um, did these big replication studies where they revealed that they could only replicate um, like a, a very small proportion of, um, of medical findings when they're trying to develop different drugs, cancer targeting drugs. Um, there's also like a recent... Oh, shit. Yeah. I mean, like, ego depletion not being true, that matters to some people. Yeah. Yeah. Y- but I don't think it's as important... As cancer drugs? Yeah. 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 Right. Fuck. There's a recent meta-analysis, uh, which is like, you know, a, a study of many studies. Um and it, it looked at findings published in some of like the biggest neuroscience journals and found that maybe around 50% of published findings may be false positives. Like half, half of it is not real. How do you like? <laughs> We're going to spin out on like some, um, some like grad school level, like existentialism or like. Like, that's where I'm at. Like, there's no truth. Like, there is. There's no truth. You know, we have no. How can you argue otherwise? Okay. My name is Harry Collins. I'm a professor at Cardiff University. I'm a fellow of the British Academy. Uh, My title is Distinguished Research Professor. Uh, I've been here for a while. Harry Uh, Collins is a sociologist of science at Cardiff University. Well, a sociologist of scientific knowledge would be more accurate. That means somebody 
who studies the way people decide that some things are true and some things aren't true. Since the 1970s, Collins has written about replication in gravitational wave physics. I wanted to ask him how to think about truth in the light of the replication crisis. So, you know, people say that we are we're living in an era of um, of post truth, of alternative facts, and and um, a rejection of expertise, um, and that all sounds quite bad. But um, you know, having taken this tour through psychology's replication crisis and seeing kind of how um, how structural problems can be invisible to experts themselves for so long. It kind of feels like maybe really we really ought to be skeptical of expertise. What do you think about that? No, I think it's absolutely the wrong conclusion to draw. And if we draw the conclusion that we ought to be skeptical of scientific expertise, we're going to create a dystopia for ourselves in no time flat. The argument is as follows. Science isn't perfect and science has never been perfect. We have to accept that what science is is a craft activity. And like any other craft activity, it's imperfect. Fortunately, science is generally done with integrity. So you've got a choice where you take your advice from. The powerful, celebrities, people who have a political interest in promulgating false truths, or people who are skilled craftsperson who work with integrity. What's important is that the sciences don't lose sight of their integrity. And there's huge pressure on the sciences to lose their integrity. There's huge pressure on the sciences to justify themselves by making more money for people, by producing entertainment, essentially, and by you know allowing themselves to become eroded in the same way as other institutions have become eroded like the banks have become eroded i think there's less danger in the case of science because of this underlying feature of science that it is defined by the search for truth but scientists scientists have got to stop selling themselves in the wrong marketplace in the capitalist marketplace in the political marketplace and politicians have got to stop trying to force scientists to sell themselves in those marketplaces. That, it seems to me, is perhaps, you know, it may be the only hope for our societies. So if you listen to cited episodes in the past or you listen to other episodes um, that we're going to produce this season, Mm -hmm. like I think that the thing that Collins is talking about, which is basically like the structural problems of academia, Mm -hmm. the way that it has become neoliberal, Mm -hmm. the way that there are these pressures on academics. Everything is measured. Everything is uh, gauged, the outputs and inputs. The thing that's attractive about what Collins said to me is that it kind of gets us out of that fog of just like nothing's true and it gives us a mission like we need to reorient science so that um, there aren't other undue pressures on it so that scientists don't feel they need to they need to um, they've got to have the freedom to pursue truth (laughs) yeah but the way but in order to do that we would need 
to totally restructure universities. Yes. And yes. the way that they behave. Yes. Because right now, th- there are all kinds of reasons why departments, individual academics, universities themselves feel that they have to constantly prove themselves mm-hmm. on the market mm-hmm. as this exceptional place where, where major discoveries happen. Mm-hmm. But if I'm going to trust the experts, they've got – I don't think it's unreasonable – to ask for some kind of reorganization and clarification. Um, and perhaps ironically, I think that it's the psychologists that are leading this movement to reorient science around these values. I wanted to see that in action. I wanted to know what it's like when a bunch of psychologists get in a room and try to fix science. Start by, by looking over that slide. Okay. Um, okay, well, Today, the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science is hosting a hackathon. Psychologists from all over have assembled to try and figure out a new set of rules for research. Well, that, that seems to me that there needs to be maybe something earlier on in the pre-registration um, Are there that actually things that you'd revise about those sections or other theories? Oh, okay. But if the point is to combat publication bias, then do we want to require testing a generalization of a theory versus a falsifying a theory? I think is yeah. That's a really good distinction. Can I ask the three of you a collective question? Sure. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out like how to feel about this. Like, um, <laughs> are the people in this room like are they going to save science or like what? <laughs> Yeah, that's how you should feel, right? (laughs) Carl Sagan said science is a candle in the dark. Another writer said science is a cemetery of dead ideas. We don't yet know if any of the changes that psychologists are making to their science will really improve its reliability. Only time will tell, and I don't know the future. I don't know if it's fair to say that none of this would have happened without Daryl Bem, but I think that psychology, maybe all of science, owes Bem a debt of gratitude for being the impetus for change. Some even believe that this was his plan all along. One possibility is this, I'm just a fraud. Right. I'm, after all, I am a magician. Right. And, and the rumor was going around that actually what I was doing was I'm trying to play a fraud on the whole of psychology by showing how stupid they are with their methods by getting them to accept these, these experiments that are just fraudulent. <laughs> so, I, needless to say, I don't believe that. <laughs> uh, kind of the epilogue to this paper that you published in 2011. Yeah. Um, you've got a passage in there from The Adventures of Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. And basically what's happening is Alice is talking to the White Queen and she says, one just can't believe impossible things. And do you remember the White Queen's reply? Oh, yes, my dear. You just haven't practiced enough why I often believe at least six impossible things before breakfast. (laughs) 
This episode was produced by Alexander Kim, edited by Sam Fenn, and me, Gordon Caddick. Further production support from Paulu Legere, Tom Lowe, and Emma Partridge. Repeat After Me was initially made in partnership with the program Ideas from CBC Radio. Nikola Lukcic of Ideas helped edit it, and the CBC shared production costs with Cited Media. Our theme song and music is from our composer, Mike Barber. This episode also featured some songs from Sam Fenn and Garth Mullins. Our graphic designer is Dakota Coop, and Cited's production manager is David Tobias. Cited's executive producers are Gordon Caddick, that's me, as well as Sam Fenn. If you like what you heard, do us a favor. Give us a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. Cited is funded in part by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. This episode was made possible with a grant to discuss public distrust of science. The project was advised by Dr. Dave Ng at the University of British Columbia's Michael Smith Labs. Dr. Ng also gave some research guidance to Alex, as did Dr. Candace Callison. She helped Alex work through some of the philosophy of science in this piece. Dr. Ed Kroc was also helpful with understanding the statistics. Cited is usually produced out of the Center for Ethics at the University of Toronto. Today, because of this global pandemic, it's being made out of my bedroom. Both of those places are on the traditional land of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people. Cited is also produced out of the Michael Smith Laboratories at the University of British Columbia. That's on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. You need me to do some like wild, just some wild takes here. You can use sort of just out of context. You can use wherever you want. Yeah, just like react, like um, give me surprise. To give you some wild. Oh, whoa! Give me shit. Really? Amazement. What? Oh my god! And then like concern. Are you sure about that? I mean, I don't know. Like, <laughs> hmm. Huh? That's really. I'm gonna have to go sit down and think about that.